Section eleven of Red Men and White. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. Red Men and White by Owen Wister. Section eleven. La Tinaja Bonita. Part two. He looked up, and, seeing the cloth and the places set, pulled his chair to the table and passively took the food she brought him. She moved about the room between shelves and fire, and, when she had served him, seated herself at leisure to begin her own supper. Uncle Ramon was a peon of some substance, doing business in towns and living comparatively well. Besides the shredded spiced stew of meat, there were several dishes for supper. Gensmere ate the meal deliberately, attending to his plate and cup, and Lolita was as silent as himself, only occasionally looking at him, and in time his thoughts came to the surface again in words. He turned and addressed Lolita in Mexican. So, you see, you saved his life down there. She laid her fork down and gave a laugh, hard and harsh, and she said nothing, but waited for what next. You don't believe that. You don't know that. He knows that. She laughed again, more briefly. You can tell him so, from me. Replies seemed to struggle together on Lolita's lips and hinder each other's escaping. And you can tell him another thing. He wouldn't have stopped. He'd have shot. Say that, from me. He'd have shot, because he's a Spaniard like you. You lie. This side issue in some manner set free the girl's tongue. I am not Spanish. I care nothing for Spaniards or what they may do. I am Mexican, and I waited to see you kill him. I wanted to watch his blood. But you, you listened to his false talk, and believed him, and let him go. I save his life? Go after him now. Do it with this knife, and tell him it is Lolita's. But do not sit there and talk any more. I have had enough of men's talk to-day. Enough! 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 Gensmere remained in his chair, while she had risen to her feet. I suppose, he said very slowly, that folks like you folks can't understand about love. Not about the kind I mean. Lolita's two hands clinched the edge of the table, and she called upon her gods. Believe it, then! Believe it! And kill me, if that will make you contented. But do not talk any more. Yes, he told me that he loved me. Yes, I kissed him. I have kissed him hundreds of times, always, since before I can remember, and I had been laughing at him to-day, having nothing in my heart but you. All day it had rejoiced me to hear his folly and think of you, and think how little he knew, and how you would come soon. But your folly is worse. Kill me in this house to-night and I will tell you, dying, that I love you, and that it is you who are the fool." 
She looked at her lover, and seeing his face and eyes she had sought to bring before her in the days that she had waited for him, she rushed to him. Lolita, he whispered, Lolita! But she could only sob as she felt his arms and his lips, and when presently he heard her voice again murmuring brokenly to him in the way that he knew and had said over in his mind, and dwelt upon through the desert stages he had ridden, he trembled and with savage triumph drew her close, and let his doubt and the thoughts that had chilled and changed him sink deep beneath the flood of this present rapture. My life, she said, toda mi vida, all my life. Through the open door the air of the canyon blew cool into the little room, overheated by the fire and the lamp and in time they grew aware of the endless rustling of the trees, and went out and stood in the darkness together, until it ceased to be darkness, and their eyes could discern the near and distant shapes of their world. The sky was black and splendid, with four or five planets too bright for lesser stars to show, and the promontories of the keen mountains shone almost as in moonlight. A certain hill, down towards the Tanaha and its late ledge, caught Ginsmere's eye, and Lolita felt him shudder, and she wound her arm more tightly about him. "'What is it?' she said. "'Nothing,' he was staring at the hill. "'Nothing,' he replied to himself. "'Dreamer, come,' said Lolita, pulling him. "'It is cold here in the night, and if you choose to forget, I choose you shall remember. What does this girl want now? The cards, our cards. Why, to be sure. He ran after her, and joy beat in her heart at the fleet kiss he tried for and half missed. She escaped into the room, laughing for delight at her lover's being himself again, his own right self that she talked with always in the long days she waited alone. "'Take it!' she cried out, putting the guitar at him, so that he should keep his distance. "'There! Now you have broken it, songless Americano. You shall buy me another.' She flung the light instrument that fell in a corner with a loud complaint of all the strings together, collapsing to a blurred hollow humming and silence. "'Now you've done it,' said Ginsmere, mock-serious. "'I don't care. I'm glad. He played on that to-day. He can have it, and you shall give me a new one.' "'Yo soy purita mexicana, nada tengo español,' sang the excited, breathless Lolita to her American, and seated herself at the table, beginning a brisk shuffle of a dim, dog-eared pack. You sit there, she nodded, to the opposite side of the table. Very well. Move the lamp, then. Ginsmere had moved it because it hid her face from him. He thinks I cheat. Now, Signor Don Ruz, it shall be for the guitar. Do you hear? Too many pesos, Signorita. Oh, oh, the miser. I'm not going broke on any Signoritas, not even my own girl. Have you no newer thing than poverty to tell me? Now, if you look at me like that, I cannot shuffle properly. 
How am I to look, please?" He held his glance at her. "Not foolish, like a boy. There, take them, then." She threw the cards at him, blushing and perturbed by his eyes, while he scrambled to punish her across the table. "Generous one!" she said. "Ardent pretender! He won't let me shuffle because he fears to lose." "You shall have a silk handkerchief with flowers on it," said he, shuffling. "I have two already. I can see you arranging those cards, miser." It was the custom of their meetings, whether at the cabin or whether she stole out to his camp, to play for the token he should bring for her when he next came from town. She named one thing, he some other, and the cards judged between them and to see Ginsmere in these hours his oldest friend could not have known him any more than he knew himself. Never had a woman been for him like Lolita, conjuring the Saxon to forget himself, and bask openly in that southern joy and laughter of the moment. "'Say my name,' he ordered, and at the child effort she made over Russ, he smiled with delight. Again, he exclaimed, bending to catch her R, and the whole odd little word she made. More! No, pouted the girl, and beat at him, blushing again. Make your bet, he said, laying out the Mexican cards before him. Quick, which shall it be? The caballo. Oh, my dear, I wanted to die this afternoon, and now I am so happy. It brought the tears to her eyes, and almost to his, till he suddenly declared she had stolen a card, and with that they came to soft blows and laughing again. So did the two sit and wrangle, seizing the pack out of turn, feigning rage at being cheated, until he juggled to make her win three times out of five. And when chance had thus settled for the guitar, they played for kisses, and so forgot the cards at last. And at last Ginsmere began to speak of the next time, and Lolita to forbid such talk as that so soon. She laid her hand over his lips, in that at which he yielded for a little, and she improvised questions of moment to ask him, without time for stopping, until she saw that this would avail no longer. Then she sighed, and let him leave her to see to his animals, while she lighted the fire again to make breakfast for him. At that parting meal an anxiety slowly came in her face, and it was she that broke their silence after a while. "'Which road do you go this time, querido?' she asked. "'Tucson, Maricopa, and then straight here to you.' "'From Maricopa? That is longer across the desert.' shorter to my girl. I, I I wish you would not come that way. Why? That, that desert. There's desert both ways, all ways. The other road puts an extra week between you and me. Yes, yes, I have counted. What is all this, Lolita? Once more she hesitated, smiling uneasily beneath his scrutiny. Yo no sé. I don't know. You will laugh. You do not believe the things that I believe. The Tinaja Bonita. 
that again? Yes, she half whispered. I am afraid. He looked at her steadily. Return the same road by Tucson, she urged. That way is only half so much desert, and you can carry water from Paso Blanco. Do not trust the coyote wells. They are little and shallow, and if the black cross— Oh, my darling, if you do not believe, do this for me, because you love me, love me. He did not speak at once. The two had risen, and stood by the open door, where the dawn was entering and mixing with the lamp. "'Because I love you,' he repeated at length, slowly, out of his uncertain thoughts. She implored him, and he studied her in silence. Suddenly hardness stamped his face. "'I'll come by Tucson, then, since I love you.' And he walked at once out of the door. She followed him to his horse, and there reached up and pulled him round to her, locking her fingers behind his neck. Again his passion swept him and burned the doubt from his eyes. "'I believe you love me,' he broke out. "'Ah, why need you say that?' "'Adios, Chiquita.' He was smiling, and she looked at his white teeth and golden moustache. She felt his hands begin to unlock her own. "'Not yet. Not yet. Adios, Chiquita. Oh, mi querido, she murmured, with you I forget day and night. Bastante, he kissed her once for all. Good-bye, good-bye. Mis labios van estar fríos hasta que tú los toques otra vez. My lips will be cold until you touch them again. He caught her two hands as if to cling to something. Say that once more. Tell me that once more. She told him with all her heart and soul, and he sprang into his saddle. She went beside him through the cold, pale-lighted trees to the garden's edge, and there stood while he took his way across the barren ground among the carcasses. She watched the tip of his moustache that came beyond the line of his cheek, and when he was farther, his whole strong figure, while the clack of the hoofs on the dead ground grew fainter. When the steeper fall of the canyon hid him from her, she ran to the house, and from its roof among her peppers she saw him come into sight again below, the wide foreshortened slant of ground between them, the white horse and dark rider and the mules, until they became a mere line of something moving, and so vanished into the increasing day. Ginsmere rode, and took presently to smoking. Coming to a sandy place, he saw prints of feet, and of a shod horse in the trail heading the other way. That was his own horse, and the feet were Lolita's and Luis's, the record and the memory of yesterday afternoon. He looked up from the trail to the hills, now lambent with violet and shifting orange, and their shapes as they moved out into his approaching view were the shapes of yesterday afternoon. He came soon to the forking of the trails, one for Tucson and the other leading down into the lumpy country, and here again were the prints in the sand, the shod horse, the man and the woman coming in from the lumpy country that lay to the left, 
and Genesmere found himself stock still by the forking trails, looking at his watch. His many journeyed mules knew which was the Tucson trail, and, not understanding why he turned them from their routine, walked asunder, puzzled at being thus driven in the wrong direction. They went along a strange up-and-down path, loose with sliding stones, and came to an end at a ledge of slate, and stood about on the tricky footing, looking at their master and leaning their heads together. The master sat quiet on his horse, staring down where a circular pool lay below, and the sun rose everywhere except in his mind. So far had he come yesterday with that mind easy over his garnered prosperity, free and soaring on its daily flight among the towers of his hopes, those constructions that are common with men who grow fond, the air-castle rises and reaches, possessing the architect, who cherishes its slow creation with hourly changes and additions to the plan. A house was part of Ginsmere's castle, a home with a wife inside, and no more camping alone. Thus far, to this exact ledge, the edifice had gone forward fortunately, and then a blast had crumbled house and days to come into indistinguishable dust. The heavy echo jarred in Ginsmere, now that he had been lured to look again upon the site of the disaster, and a lightning violence crossed his face. He saw the two down there as they had stood the man with his arms holding the woman, before the falling stone had startled them. Were the Mexican present now in the flesh, he would destroy him just for what he had tried to do. If she were true, she was true, that was no thanks to the Mexican. Gensmere was sorry second thoughts had spared that fellow yesterday, and he looked at his watch again. It was time to be starting on the Tucson trail, and the mules alertly turned their steps from the Tanaja Bonita. They could see no good in having come here. Evidently it was not to get water. Why, then? What use was there in looking down a place into a hole? The mules gave it up. Gensmere himself thought the Tanaja poorly named. It was not pretty. In his experience of trail and canyon he knew no other such hole. He was not aware of the twin, dried up, thirty yards below, and therefore only half knew the wonders of the spot. He rode back to the forks, across the rolling steepness, rebuilding the castle. Then, discovering something too distant to be sure about, used his glass quickly. It was another rider, also moving slowly among the knolls and gullies of the mesa, and Gensmere could not make him out. He was going towards the cabin, but it was not the same horse that Luis had ridden yesterday. This proved nothing, and it would be easy to circle and see the man closer, only not worth the trouble. Let the Mexican go to the cabin. Let him go every day. He probably would, if she permitted. Most likely she would tell him to keep away from her. She ought to. She might hurt him if he annoyed her. She was a good shot with the pistol. But women work differently from men, 
and then she was Mexican. She might hide her feelings and make herself pleasant for three weeks. She would tell him when he returned, and they would laugh together over how she had fooled this Luis. After all, shooting would have been too much punishment. A man with a girl like Lolita must expect to find other men after her. It depends on your girl. You find that out when you go after other men's girls. When a woman surely loves some other man, she will not look at you. And Lolita's love was a sure thing. A woman can say love, and a man will believe her, until he has experienced the genuine article once. After that he can always tell. And to have a house, with her inside waiting for you, such a turn was strange luck for a man not to be accounted for. If anybody had said last year, why, as late as the twentieth of last March, that settling down was what you were coming to, and now. Ginsmere wondered how he could ever have seen anything in riding a horse up and down the earth and caring nothing for what next. No longer alone, he said aloud, suddenly, and surprised the white horse. The song about the hunchback and the sacristan's cat stirred its rhythm in his mind. He was not a singer, but he could think the tune, trace it naked of melody in the dry realm of the brain, and it was a diversion to piece out the gait of the phantom notes, low after high, quick after slow, until they went of themselves. Lolita would never kiss Luis again, would never want to not even as a joke. Ginsmere turned his head back to take another look at the rider, and there stood the whole mountains like a picture, and himself far out in the flat country, and the bare sun in the sky. He had come six miles on the road since he had last noticed. Six miles, and the air-castle was rebuilt and perfect, with no difference from the old one except its foundation, which was upon sand. To see the unexpected plain around him, and the islands of blue sharp peaks lying in it, drove the tune from his head, and he considered the well-known country, reflecting that man could not be meant to live here. The small mountain islands lay at all distances, blue in a dozen ways, amid the dead calm of this sand archipelago. They rose singly from it, sheer and sudden, toothed and triangled like icebergs, hot as stoves. The channels to the north, Santa Rosa way, opened broad and yellow, and ended without shore upon the clean horizon, and to the south narrowed with lagoons into Sonora. Ginsmere could just see one top of the Sierra de la Quitabac jutting up from below the earth-line, splitting the main channel, the faintest blue of all. They could be having no trouble over their water down there, with the Laguna Esperanza and the Pozo de Mazis. Ginsmere killed some more of the way rehearsing the trails and water-holes of this country, known to him like his pocket and by and by food-cooking and mule-feeding and the small machine repetitions of a camp and a journey 
brought the Quixotoa Mountains behind him to replace Gunsight and the Sierra de la Naril, and later still the Kababi hid the Quixotoa, and Ginsmere counted days and nights to the good, and was at the Coyote Wells. These were holes in rocks, but shallow, as Lolita said, no shallower than ordinary, however. He would see on the way back if they gave signs of failing. No wonder if they did, with this spell of drought, but why mix up a plain thing with a lot of nonsense about a black cross down a hole? Ginsmere was critically struck with the words of the tune he now noticed steadily running in his head again, beneath the random surface of his thoughts. Cinco dragones y un cabo y un gato de sacristan. That made no sense either, but Mexicans found something in it, liked it. Now American songs had some sense. They bathed his head in vinegar to fetch him up to time, and now he drives a mule team on the Denver city line. A man could understand that. A proud stage-driver makes a mistake about a female passenger, thinks he has got an heiress, and she turns out to peddle sarsaparilla. So he's naturally used up, commented Gensmere. You estimate a girl as one thing, and she— Here the undercurrent welled up, breaking the surface. Did she mean that? Was that her genuine reason? In memory he took a look at his girl's face and repeated her words when she besought him to come the longer way and hesitated over why. Was that shame at owning she believed such stuff? True, after asking him once about his religion, and hearing what he said, she had never spoken of these things again. That must be a woman's way when she loved you first, to hide her notions that differed from yours, and not ruffle happy days return the same road by Tucson. He unwrapped a clean, many-crumpled handkerchief, and held Lolita's photograph for a while. Then he burst into an unhappy oath, and folded the picture up again. What if her priest did tell her? He had heard the minister tell about eternal punishment when he was a boy, and just as soon as he started thinking it over, he knew it was a lie and this quack Tinaja was worse foolishness, and had nothing to do with religion. Lolita, afraid of his coming to grief in a country he had travelled hundreds, thousands of miles in. Perhaps she had never started thinking for herself yet. But she had. She was smarter than any girl of her age he had ever seen. She did not want him back so soon. That was what it was. Yet she had looked true. Her voice had sounded that way. Again he dwelt upon her words and caresses, and harboring these various thoughts, he killed still more of the long road, until, passing after a while Poso Blanco, and later Marsh's ranch well at the forks where the Sonora road comes in, he reached Tucson, a man divided against himself divided beyond his will into two selves, one of faith besieged, and one of besieging inimical reason, the inextricable error. 
Business and pleasure were waiting in Tucson, and friends whose ways and company had not been of late for him. But he frequented them this time, tasting no pleasure, yet finding the ways and company better than his own. After the desert's changeless, unfathomed silence, in which nothing new came day or night to break the fettering spell his mind was falling under, the clink and knocking of bottles was good to hear, and he listened for more, craving any sound that might liven or distract his haunted spirit. Instead of the sun and stars, here was a roof. Instead of the pitiless clear air, here was tobacco smoke, and beneath his boot heels a wooden floor, wet with spilled liquids instead of the unwatered crumbling sand. Without drinking, he moved his chair near the noisiest drinkers, and thus among the tobacco smoke sought to hide from his own looming doubt. Later the purring tinkle of guitars reminded him of that promised present and the next morning he was the owner of the best instrument that he could buy. Leaving it with a friend to keep until he should come through again from Maricopa, he departed that way with his mules, finding in the new place the same sort of friends and business, and by night looking upon the same untasted pleasures. He went about town with some cattlemen, carousing bankrupts, who remembered their ruin in the middle of whiskey, and broke off to curse it, and the times and climate, and their starved herds that none would buy at any price. Ginsmere touched nothing, yet still drew his chair among these drinkers. "'Aren't you feeling good tonight, Russ?' asked one at length. And Ginsmere's eyes roused from seeing visions, and his ears became aware of the loud company. In Tucson he had been able to sit in the smoke and compass a cheerful deceit of appearance even to himself. Choosing and buying the guitar had lent reality to his imitated peace of mind. He had been careful over its strings, selecting such as Lolita preferred, wrapped in carrying out this spiritual forgery of another Ginsmere. But here they had noticed him appearances had slipped from him. He listened to a piece of late Arizona news someone was in the middle of telling, the trial of several Mormons for robbing a paymaster near Cedar Springs. This was the fourth time he had heard the story, because it was new. But the present narrator dwelt upon the dodgings of a witness, a negress, who had seen everything and told nothing, outwitting the government, furnishing no proofs. This brought Ginsmere quite back. No proofs, he muttered, no proofs. He laughed and became alert. She lied to them good, did she? They looked at him because he had not spoken for so long, and he was told that she had certainly lied good. Fool them clean through, did she? On oath. Tell about her. The flattered narrator, who had been in court, gave all he knew, and Gensmere received each morsel of perjury gravely, with a nod. He sat still when the story was done. Yes, he said after a time, yes, and again, yes. 
Then he briefly bade the boys good night, and went from the lamps and whiskey into the dark. He walked up and down alone, round the corral where his mule stood, round the stable where his bed-blankets were, and one or two carousers came by who suggested further enjoyments to him. He went to the edge of the town and walked where passers would not meet him, turning now and then to look in the direction of Tucson where the guitar was waiting. When he felt the change of dawn he went to the stable, and by the first early gray had his mules packed. He looked once again towards Tucson, and took the road he had promised not to take, leaving the guitar behind him altogether. His faith protested a little, but the other self invented a quibble, the mockery that he had already come by Tucson, according to his literal word, and this device answered. It is a comfort to be divided no longer against oneself. Ginsmere was at ease in his thraldom to the demon with whom he had wrestled through the dark hours. As the day brightened, he wondered how he had come to fool a night away over a promise such as that. He took out the face in the handkerchief and gave it a curious, defiant smile. She had said waiting would be long. She should have him quickly and he was going to know about that visitor at the cabin, the steeple-hatted man he saw in his visions. So Maricopa drew behind him, small, clear-grouped in the unheated morning, and the sun found the united man and his mules moving into the desert. By the well in the bottom of the Santa Cruz River he met with cattle and little late-born calves trying to trot. Their mothers, the foreman explained, had not milk enough for them, nor the cursed country food or water for the mothers. They could not chew cactus. These animals had been driven here to feed and fatten inexpensively, and get quick money for the owner. But instead, half of them had died, and the men were driving the rest to new pastures, as many, that is, as could still walk. Ginsmere knew, the foreman supposed, that this well was the last for more than a hundred miles. Funny to call a thing like that Santa Cruz a river. Well, it was an Arizona river. All right enough, no doubt, somewhere a thousand feet or so underground. Pity you weren't a prairie dog that eats sand when he gets a thirst on him. Got any tobacco? Good-bye. Think of any valleys that you know between high mountains. Such was southern Arizona once, before we came. Then fill up your valleys with sand until the mountains show no feet or shoulders, but become as men buried to the neck. That is what makes separate islands of their protruding peaks, and that is why water slinks from the surface whenever it can, and flows useless underneath entombed in the original valley. This is Arizona now, since the pterodactyls have gone. In such a place the traveler turns mariner, only, instead of the stars, he studies the water-wells, shaping his course by these. Not seagulls, but ravens fly over this waste, seeking their meal. 
Some were in front of Genesmere now, settled black in the recent trail of the cattle. He did not much care that the last well was gone by, for he was broken in by long travel to the water of the doby holes that people rely upon through this journey. These doby holes are occasional wallows in clayey spots, and men and cattle know each one. The cattle, of course, roll in them, and they become worn into circular hollows, their edges tramped into muck, and surrounded by a thicket belt of mesquite. The water is not good, but will save life. The first one lay two stages from the well, and Ginsmere accordingly made an expected dry camp the first night carrying water from the well in the Santa Cruz, and dribbling all of it but a cupful among his animals, and the second night reached his calculated doby hole. The animals rolled luxuriously in the brown dungy mixture, and Genesmere made his coffee strong. He had had no shade at the first camp, and here it was good under the tangle of the mesquite, and he slept sound. He was early awakened by the ravens, whose loose, dislocated croaking came from where they sat at breakfast on the other side of the wallow. They had not suspected his presence among the mesquite, and when he stepped to the mud-hole and dipped its gummy fluid in his coffee-pot, they rose hoarse and hovering, and flapped twenty yards away, and sat watching until he was gone into the desert, when they clouded back again around their carrion. This day was over ground, yellow and hard with dearth, until afternoon brought a footing of sifting sand heavy to travel in. He had plenty of time for thinking. His ease after the first snapping from his promise had changed to an eagerness to come unawares and catch the man in the steeple hat. Till that there could be no proofs. Ginsmere had along the road nearly emptied his second canteen of its brown-amber drink, wetting the beast's tongues more than his own. The neighborhood of the next doby hole might be known by the three miles of cactus you went through before coming on it, a wide-set plantation of the yucca. The posted plants deployed over the plain in strange extended order like legions and legions of figures, each shock-head of spears bunched bristling at the top of its lank, scaly stalk, and out of that stuck the blossom-pole, a pigtail on end, with its knot of bell-flowers seated to pods ten feet in the air. Gensmere's horse started and nearly threw him, but it was only a young calf lying for shade by a yucca. Ginsmere could tell from its unlicked hide that the mother had gone to hunt water, and been away for some time. This unseasonable waif made a try at running away, but fell in a heap, and lay as man and mules passed on. Presently he passed a sentinel cow. She stood among the thorns, guarding the calves of her sisters till they should return from getting their water. The desert cattle learned this shift, and the sentinel, now, at the stranger's approach, lowered her head, and with a feeble but hostile sound made ready to protect her charge. 
keeping her face to the passing enemy. Farther along, gaunt cows stood or lay under the perpetual yuccas, an animal to every plant. They stared at Gensmere passing on. Some rose to look after him, some lifted their heads from the ground, and seeing, laid them down again. He came upon a calf watching its mother, who had fallen in such a position that the calf could not suck. The cow's foreleg was caught over her own head, and so she held herself from rising. The sand was rolled and grooved into a wheel by her circlings. Her body heaved and fell with breathing, and the sand was wet where her pivot nostrils had ground it. While Gensmere untangled her and gave her tongue the last of his canteen, the calf walked round and round. He placed the cow upon her feet, and as soon as he moved away to his horse, the calf came to its mother, who began to lick it. He presently marked ahead the position of the coming doby-hole by the ravens assembled in the air, continually rising and lighting. The white horse and mules quickened their step, and the trail became obliterated by hundreds of hoof-marks leading to the water. As a spider looks in the center of an empty web, so did the round wallow sit in the middle of the plain, with threaded feet conducting from everywhere to it. Mules and white horse scraped through the scratching mesquite, and the ravens flapped up. To Gensmere their croaking seemed suddenly to fill all space with loud total clamor, for no water was left, only mud. He eased the animals of their loads and saddles, and they rolled in the stiff mud, squeezing from it a faint ooze, and getting a sort of refreshment. Gensmere chewed the mud, and felt sorry for the beasts. He turned both canteens upside down and licked the bungs. A cow had had his last drink. Well, that would keep her alive several hours more. Hardly worth while, but spilled milk decidedly. Milk! That was an idea. He caught animal after animal and got a few sickly drops. There was no gain in camping at this spot, no water for coffee. So Gensmere moved several hundred yards away to be rid of the ravens and their all-day-long meal and the smell. He lay thinking what to do. Go back? At the rate he could push the animals now, that last hole might be used up by the cattle before he got there, and then it was two stages more to the Santa Cruz well. And the man would be gaining just so many more days unhindered at the cabin out of the question. Forward, it was one shortish drive to the next hole. If that were dry, he could forsake the trail and make a try by a shortcut for that Tinaja place. And he must start soon, too, as soon as the animals could stand it, and travel by night and rest when the sun got bad. What business had October to be hot like this? So in the darkness he mounted again, and noon found him with eyes shut under a yucca. It was here that he held a talk with Lolita. 
They were married, and sitting in a room with curtains that let you see flowers growing outside by the window, as he had always intended. Lolita said to him that there was no fool like an old fool, and he was telling her that love could make a man more a fool than age, when she threw the door open, letting in bright light, and said, No proofs! The bright light was the real sun coming round the yucca on his face, and he sat up and saw the desert. No cows were here, but he noticed the roughened hides and sunk eyes of his own beasts and spoke to them. Cheer up, Jeff! Stonewall! He stopped at the pain. It was in his lips and mouth. He put up his hand, and the feel of his tongue frightened him. He looked round to see what country he was in, and noted the signs that it was not so very far now. The blue crags of the islands were showing, and the blue sterile sky spread over them, and the ceaseless sunlight like a plague. Man and horse and mules were the only life in the naked bottom of this cauldron. The mirage had caught the nearest island, and blunted and dissolved its points, and frayed its base away to a transparent fringe. "'Like a lump of sugar melts in hot tod,' remarked Gensmere, aloud, and remembering his thickened mouth, said, "'I can stand it off for a while yet, though if they can travel.' His mules looked at him when he came, looked when he tightened their cinches. I know, Jeff, he said, and inspected the sky. No heavens up there. Nothing's back of that thing, unless it's hell. He got the animals going, and the next doby hole was like the last, and busy with the black flapping of the birds. You didn't fool me, said Ginsmere, addressing the mud. I knew you'd be dry. His eye ran over the cattle that lay in various conditions. That foreman was not too soon getting his livestock out of your country, he continued to the hole, his tongue clacking as it made his words. This livestock here's not enjoying itself like its owners in town. This livestock was intended for eastern folks' dinner. But you've got ahead of em this trip, he said to the ravens. He laughed loudly, and hearing himself, stopped, and his face became stern. You don't want to talk this way, Russ Gensmore. Shut your head. You're alone. I wish I'd never known, he suddenly cried out. He went to his animals and sat down by them, clasping and unclasping his hands. The mules were lying down on the baked mud of the wallow with their loads on, and he loosened them. He stroked his white horse for some little while, thinking and it was in his heart that he had brought these beasts into this scrape. It was sunset and cool. Against the divine fires of the west the peaks towered clear in splendor impassive and forever aloof, and the universe seemed to fill with infinite sadness. "'If she'll tell me it's not so,' he said, "'I'll believe her. I will believe her now. I'll make myself. She'll help me, too.' He took what rest he dared, and started up from it much later than he had intended, having had the talk with Lolita again in the room with the curtains. It was nine when he set out for the short cut under the moon, dazed by his increasing torture. 
The brilliant disk, blurring to the eye, showed the mountains unearthly plain, beautiful and tall in the night. By and by a mule fell, and could not rise, and Ginsmere decided it was as well for all to rest again. The next he knew it was blazing sunshine, and the sky at the same time bedded invisible in black clouds. And when his hand reached for a cloud that came bellying down to him, it changed into a pretzel and salt burned in his mouth at the sight of it. He turned away and saw the hot, unshaded mountains wrinkled in the sun, glazed and shrunk, gullied like the parchment of an old man's throat. And then he saw a man in a steeple hat. He could no more lay the spectre that wasted his mind than the thirst demon which raged in his body. He shut his eyes, and then his arm was beating at something to keep it away. Pillowed on his saddle, he beat until he forgot. A blow at the corner of his eye brought him up sitting, and a raven jumped from his chest. "'You're not experienced,' said Gensmere. "'I'm not dead yet. But I'm obliged to you for being so enterprising. You've cleared my head. Quit that talk, Russ Gensmore.' He went to the mule that had given out during the night. "'Poor Jeff! We must lighten your pack. Now if that hunchback had died here, the birds would have done his business for him without help from any of your cats. Am I saying that now, or only thinking it? I know I'm alone. I've traveled that way in this world. Why? He turned his face, expecting someone to answer, and the answer came in a fierce voice. Because you're a man, and can stand this world off by yourself, you look to no one. He suddenly took out the handkerchief and tore the photograph to scraps. That's lightened my pack all it needs. Now for these boys, or they'll never make camp. He took what the mules carried, his merchandise, and hid it carefully between stones, for they had come near the mountain country, and looking at the plain he was leaving, he saw a river. Ha-ha! he said slyly. You're not there, though and I'll prove it to you." He chose another direction, and saw another flowing river. "'I was expecting you,' he stated quietly. "'Don't bother me. I'm thirsty.' But presently, as he journeyed, he saw lying to his right a wide, fertile place with fruit-trees and water everywhere. "'Peaches, too!' he sang out, and sprang off to run, but checked himself in five steps. I don't seem able to stop your foolish talking, he said, but you shall not chase around like that. You'll stay with me. I tell you that's a sham. Look at it. Obedient, he looked hard at it, and the cactus and rocks thrust through the watery image of the lake like two photographs on the same plate. He shouted with strangling triumph, and continued shouting until briar-roses along a brook and a farmhouse unrolled to his left, and he ran halfway there, calling his mother's name. "'Why, you fool, she's dead!' He looked slowly at his cut hands, for he had fallen among stones. "'Dead, back in Kentucky, 
ever so long ago he murmured softly didn't stay to see you get wicked then he grew stern again you've showed yourself up and you can't tell land from water you're going to let the boys take you straight i don't trust you he started the mules and caught hold of his horse's tail and they set out in a single file held steady by their instinct stumbling ahead for the water they knew among the mountains mules led and the shouting man brought up the rear clutching the white tail like a rudder his feet sliding along through the stones the country grew higher and rougher and the peaks blazed in the hot sky slate and sand and cactus below gaping cracks and funneled erosions above rocks like monuments slanting up to the top pinnacles supreme arizona stark and dead in space like an extinct planet flooded blind with eternal brightness the perpetual dominating peaks caught Gensmere's attention toll on he cried to them toll on you tall mountains what do you care summer and winter night and day i've known you and i've heard you all along a man can't look but he sees you walling god's country from him ringing away with your knell he must have been lying down during some time for now he saw the full moon again and his animals near him and a fire blazing that himself had evidently built the coffee-pot sat on it red-hot and split open he felt almost no suffering at all but stronger than ever in his life and he heard something somewhere screaming water 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 fast and unceasing like an alarm clock a rattling of stones made him turn and there stood a few staring cattle instantly he sprang to his feet and the screaming stopped round em up ruskinsmere it's getting late he yelled and ran among the cattle whirling his rope they dodged weakly this way and that and next he was on the white horse urging him after the cows who ran in a circle one struck the end of a log that stuck out from the fire splintering the flames and embers and Gensmere followed on the tottering horse through the sparks swinging his rope and yelling in the full moon round em up round em up don't you want to make camp all the rest of the herds bedded down along with the ravens the white horse fell and threw him by the edge of a round hole but he did not know it till he opened his eyes and it was light again and the mountains still tolling then like a crash of cymbals the tanaha beat into his recognition he knew the slate rock he saw the broken natural stairs he plunged down them arms forward like a diver's and ground his forehead against the bottom it was dry his bloodshot eyes rolled once up round the sheer walls yes it was the tanaha and his hands began to tear at the gravel he flung himself to fresh places fiercely grubbing with his heels biting into the sand with his teeth while above him in the canyon his placid animals lay round the real tanaha bonita having slaked their thirst last night in time some thirty yards from where he now lay bleeding and fighting the dust 
in the dry twin hole. He heard voices and put his hands up to something round his head. He was now lying out in the light, with a cold bandage round his forehead and a moist rag on his lips. Water! He could just make the whisper. But Lolita made a sign of silence. Water! he gasped. She shook her head, smiling, and moistened the rag. That must be all just now. His eyes sought and traveled and stopped short, dilating, and Lolita screamed at his leap for the living well. Not yet! Not yet! she said in terror, grappling with him. Help, Luis! So this was their plot, the demon told him, to keep him from water. In a frenzy of strength he seized Lolita. Proved! Proved! he shouted, and struck his knife into her. She fell at once to the earth and lay calm, eyes wide open, breathing in the bright sun. He rushed to the water and plunged, swallowing and rolling. Luis ran up from the cows he was gathering, and when he saw what was done, sank by Lolita to support her. She pointed to the pool. He is killing himself, she managed to say, and her head went lower. And I'll help you die, Cabaron. I'll tear your tongue, I'll— But Lolita, hearing Luis's terrible words, had raised a forbidding hand. She signed to leave her and bring Ginsmere to her. The distracted Luis went down the stone stairs to kill the American in spite of her, but the man's appearance stopped him. You could not raise a hand against one come to this. The water-drinking was done, and Ginsmere lay fainting, head and helpless arms on the lowest stone, body in the water. The black cross stood dry above. Luis heard Lolita's voice, and dragged Ginsmere to the top as quickly as he could. She, seeing her lover, cried his name once, and died, and Luis cast himself on the earth. Fool! Fool! he repeated, catching at the ground, where he lay for some while, until a hand touched him. It was Ginsmere. I'm seeing things pretty near straight now, the man said. Come close. I can't talk well. Was was that talk of yours and singing? Was that bluff? God forgive me, said poor Luis. You mean forgive me, said Gensmere. He lay looking at Lolita. Close her eyes, he said, and Luis did so. Gensmere was plucking at his clothes, and the Mexican helped him draw out a handkerchief which the lover unfolded like a treasure. She used to look like this, he began. He felt and stopped. Why, it's gone, he said. He lay evidently seeking to remember where the picture had gone, and his eyes went to the hills whence no help came. Presently Luis heard him speaking, and, leaning to hear, made out that he was murmuring his own name, Russ, in the way Lolita had been used to say it. The boy sat speechless, and no thought stirred in his despair as he watched. The American moved over and put his arms round Lolita, Luis knowing that he must not offer to help him do this. 
he remained so long that the boy, who would never be a boy again, bent over to see. But it was only another fainting fit. Luis waited. Now and then the animals moved among the rocks. The sun crossed the sky, bringing the many-colored evening, and Arizona was no longer terrible, but once more infinitely sad. Luis started, for the American was looking at him and beckoning. "'She's not here,' Ginsmere said distinctly. Luis could not follow. "'Not here, I tell you,' the lover touched his sweetheart. "'This is not her. My punishment is nothing,' he went on, his face growing beautiful. "'See there?' Luis looked where he pointed. "'Don't you see her?' Don't you see her fixing that camp for me? We're going to camp together now. But these were visions alien to Luis, and he stared helpless, anxious to do anything that the man might desire. Ginsmere's face darkened wistfully. Am I not making camp, he said? Luis nodded to please him, without at all comprehending. You don't see her? Reason was warring with the departing spirit until the end. Well, maybe you're right. I never was sure. But I'm mortal tired of traveling alone. I hope... That was the end. And Russ Ginsmere lay still beside his sweetheart. It was a black evening at the cabin, and a black day when Luis and old Ramon raised and fenced the wooden headstone with its two forlorn names. End of section 11